when you looked at a lot of the people being interviewed in those communities, they kind of were saying, you know, the system isn't working for me and I'm not a huge Donald Trump fan, but he's a wrecking ball. And maybe if I vote for the wrecking ball, people will start paying attention to the fact that our communities are completely devastated right now and in complete despair. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I'm continuing to work my way through some of the key people tackling the problem of progressive politics in rural America. My guest today is Matt Hildreth, the executive director of ruralorganizing.org, a national progressive political group based in Iowa with a mission to improve rural life in this country. I had a great conversation with Matt about the high hurdles we face in that part of America, including how badly the Democratic brand is viewed, despite closer policy alignment on economic issues, and what he's been trying to do about it. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Matt Hildreth of ruralorganizing.org. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Matt, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. My name is Matt Hildreth, and I'm the executive director of ruralorganizing.org. We're a national, boldly progressive and proudly rural organization that was founded by rural progressives and is really focused on uh, empowering rural folks uh, to engage in their democracy and is really focused on addressing the the modern needs of small towns and rural communities. So we do that work through communications. We do that work through a public opinion research. We do that through policy. But all of that work is really done and sort of motivated through our, our national list, which we have an email list of about 760,000 people. And then we have a grassroots civic leaders network of about 4,000 people. These are mayors, they're librarians, you know, uh, public health officials, uh, doctors, nurses. Um, and so those folks are really the core of the work that we do. And we really try to uh, focus our work around empowering them. And so I come to this work. Actually, I started my career working in, in, in television and broadcast. I got really disillusioned early on in my career while working uh, for ABC News, um, looked for more meaningful work, uh, which took me to Sojourners, which is a progressive faith-based magazine. Um, and at that time, uh, back in 2008, I covered the Postville immigration raid. And so I was just sort of shocked at the devastation caused by politics, right? It was an election year. I think the, George Bush and the Republicans were really wanting to send a strong immigration message. Um, and I was sort of left through my job uh, covering the devastation uh, in the wake of that immigration raid. So after that, I spent 10 years working on immigration policy and around immigration politics. And uh, most of that time, 
my job was based in DC, but I was uh, rooted in Steve King's congressional district. My family's all from Iowa. At that point, that's when I started realizing back in about 2012 uh, that progressives had a, a lot of work to do in small towns and rural communities. Uh, so I started ruralorganizing.org back then as a passion project uh, first while I was working on immigration related policies and communications. And since then, you know, frankly, in light of of the rise of Donald Trump, um, there was just a ton of momentum around rural engagement. That's when the organization kind of took off. So we're a C3, a C4, and a super PAC. Um, and we just, you know, focus day in and day out on really uh, creating a rural America that's empowered, thriving, and equitable. I was pretty happy to get a chance to talk to you, partially because I had recently talked to J.D. Schulten and Irene Lynn, who was his 2018 campaign manager. And I felt like I was starting to learn a little bit about what happened in that district and how uh, JD had teamed up with you to some extent, or, you know, uh, it sounds like he does the super PAC that you mentioned. And I also talked to several other people recently, including the pollster at YouGov, who, uh, who I think you worked with to take some temperature around rural uh, attitudes and so on. And, and I feel like this is not a really highly covered part of our politics and probably really underaddressed. And it also seems to be one of these areas where there's a ton of change going on, mostly not to the good from the progressive standpoint. Glad to have the chance to talk to you. Uh, you grew up there. What kind of rural was it where you grew up? Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate that. I mean, we love to say if you've been to one rural community, you've been to one rural community. So to, to say what kind of rural did I grow up in, um, uh, you know, um, is, is a great way of framing it. Um, so my family is all from Northwest Iowa, uh, been there for like, you know, eight generations. But my dad and my mom left and my dad took a job uh, just across the border, uh, still in what you know, the, the locals would refer to as Siouxland, uh, which is sort of the economic watershed around Sioux Falls and Sioux City, uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Sioux City, Iowa. So it's, you know, kind of a, a, a tri-state area. So I grew up on the South Dakota side of that, but my family was all from the Iowa side. So I grew up on uh, kind of the edge of town, a small far a hobby farm. Uh, most Americans not from rural America would say that I grew up on a farm. Most farmers would scoff at the idea that I grew up on a farm. So somewhere in in between. Um, and I think that experience really shaped uh, kind of who I am today. Uh, one, because the town I grew up in was a college town. Uh, my dad was connected to the university. And um, so much of my early experience was sort of small town international, which is a, a very unique type of rural. It's not unique to college towns. Postville, Iowa, where the immigration was in 2008, was very much a international community, uh, but focused more around meat processing. Um, the town I grew up in was a little bit different, focused around the university. So um, it was, you know, a very uh, amazing place to grow up. It definitely is a red community, but sort of, you know, all the great Democrats there are Republicans, as they used to say. Um, this was kind of during Daschle and Tim Johnson. And so I was not involved in politics growing up, but um, but I have, you know, uh, distinct memories of meeting Tom Daschle at the state fair. And so, you know, I kind of came to politics a little bit later uh, in life, but um, but I definitely, you know, looking back can see that common thread that goes from sort of community-based values and looking out for each other and kind of having each other's back and, 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 a, and a progressive mindset. I've tried over the last uh, 15 to 20 years to live in rural communities as much as I can. 
I'm in one now. Uh, I was in Iowa. I lived in Columbus, Ohio, which is not rural. But in most of the rural communities you live in, um, you know, there's this sort of common thing. Before GoFundMe, it was, um, it was, you know, you'd put a little bull on the on the next to the cash register, and you know, in the in the small business, and somebody would say, you know, so and so got hurt in an accident or, you know, fighting some sort of cancer and the community would put money into the pot to really help out. And that's the type of rural community that I came from. How that then gets translated into politics has really shifted over the last couple of years. But when I was growing up, you know, it was that, that was very much a, it, there was a lot of pride in that looking out for each other. And that's one thing I think, you know, you mentioned that things are changing in rural communities. That's, that is one way that I look at it. There's a few uh, external factors that are determining our politics. One is that a lot of folks like myself moved and, and, you know, we tended to move away to a bigger city or a, a more blue community. When I was growing up, the thing that everybody did, I mean, and it, and, fra- and frankly, it was something that happened around uh, freshman or sophomore year where you would sort of be approached by older people in the community. And it was sort of like, are you going to stay or are you going to leave? And that was a question that guidance counselors were proposing. And it was sort of like, if you stay, you're going to work in kind of a trades job. I mean, I was in a college town, so it was a little bit different, but you know, overwhelmingly, it was kind of like the good jobs. If you stayed were doctors and nurses at best, you know, and most of the jobs were, you know, connected to agriculture in some ways, but, but most people were working more in the healthcare or more of the trades jobs. Um, but if you left, you could do whatever you wanted, you know, <laughs> there was never this idea that you could stay and do whatever you wanted. So with that trend, um, a lot of folks like myself, uh, you know, packed up and moved away where I grew up, people would go to Minneapolis, St. Paul, or, or to Minnesota at least. And so you had this dynamic where a lot of the young people were moving to bluer states and bluer cities. And the folks that were staying behind tended to vote a little bit more red. And so the blue states were getting bluer, red states were getting redder. Uh, and that's really a dynamic that's been playing out for the last 45 years. And so, um, you know, <laughs> that dynamic has a huge impact on our politics when we still have two senators from every state. And I think this is why we see the Supreme Court going backwards is you have more and more people, like half the population are concentrated of the United States are concentrated in like 18 states. So Democrats can do really, really well in the blue states, but, you know, we still have the republic system of government where South Dakota still has two senators. And so in that sense, the, you know, the, that demographic or migration change is having an impact. But on the other hand, uh, today, uh, one out of every three new rural residents in rural America are immigrants. While you have this outflow of young people, um, you also have these inflows mostly connected to agriculture communities, whether you're talking about farm working communities. The fact is, is that there's actually more farm workers in the United States than small family farmers or you're talking about meatpacking communities, you have this influx of immigrants and refugees. So there are some demographics that are working to our advantage. And I think, you know, oftentimes because campaigns and organizations are disconnected from rural communities, they get really stuck in that 1950s stereotype of rural America. And they miss all of this really interesting change that is happening. And the other thing I'll say, and this is still kind of new post-COVID, but I'm convinced that it's possible that this question is less relevant that, you know, high school sophomores are getting, you know, are you going to leave and pursue your dreams? Or are you going to stay here and just take what you can get? I think, you know, with investments in technology, you know, we all talk about broadband, Broadband's like a 20 year old technology now. So the fact that we're fighting to get 20 year old technology into rural communities is I think a little bit behind the curve, but 
you know, technology in general, whether we're talking about high-speed rail, whether we're talking about, you know, fiber or 5G or whatever, there's a ton of really great investments in regional airports. Um, connectivity across the board, the post office, that's one of our biggest campaigns we've ever done is fighting for the post office. You know, it's really great to have internet for online commerce and e-stores, but you have to, you know, have a, a post office to send a package. So connectivity in general, I think is making the world a little bit smaller and it's making it easier for kids to grow up in a rural community, to go to college and never leave home, but go to some of the top universities in the country online, especially this generation that's been doing Zoom classes, you know, all through high school. There's a real opportunity to use the demographic or new migration patterns to our advantage as well. You have kind of an interesting educational history where you went to college and then also took some other cracks at degrees and certificates and so on. Can you just sort of explain what you learned along the way in, in that sort of environment? Well, so I am a Bible college graduate. Fun little fact that a lot of my friends these days don't realize. Did you learn something at a Bible college? I did. I did. I, um, I, and I grew up, you know, kind of conservative evangelical. My, my parents were Catholic and then kind of moved to the evangelical churches, uh, during the late eighties, early nineties. Um, so my parents were very much connected into that, uh, movement or that community. Um, I was always a, a bit of an outsider, I think within the churches that I went to, I, I never would have thought of myself as progressive, but like looking back, uh, like I think I voted, my first vote was in 2004 for Nader. <laughs> It was just because I wasn't that impressed with Kerry and I couldn't see myself voting for a Republican. And so, you know, that was as much as I knew about politics going into college. I actually started my career, though, in high school. Uh, my hometown has a, a, a company called Dectronics and Dectronics is the company that developed the technology for jumbotrons. So I got a, a job working at Dectronics uh, in high school. I was working in local TV, st uh, a TV station. I was working for the local paper. So I got really involved in media and production in my, uh, in my high school career. And I actually got a job with the Minnesota Wild, the professional hockey team in Minnesota, which is why I ended up in Minnesota. And then from there was able to go to Bible college because um, my sister was going there and I knew some people that had gone there. And so I just wanted to be in Minneapolis and then uh, ended up at Bethel. So, uh, but I had a really strong production background at that point. So I ended up studying philosophy uh, because I thought it was cool. And uh, it was different. And so that philosophy undergrad at Bible college to this day really shapes everything that I do. One, uh, because I think philosophy was a really great way to take incredibly complicated ideas and break them down into something that we can discuss and debate. That's something that's really required in a, a strategic communications and, um, and especially within a political context as well. So in addition to sort of the philosophies of Kierkegaard and others, um, I think the real skill that I learned was that ability to communicate complexity in ways that articulate what we're trying to articulate. And then from there, uh, I ended up a couple, you know, years later, ended up at uh, the University of Iowa doing a strategic communications degree. And in between those two, uh, I took the Marshall Gans course uh, through Harvard University, uh, looking at um, advocacy and leadership and, and kind of story of self trainings and things like that. And so uh, my career has been a really interesting examination of, of, of the role the media plays in our lives and, and the role that media plays in our politics. The organization that I founded is ruralorganizing.org, but so much of the organizing we do is within this media landscape um, that is that is so dominant now by this right wing disinformation, and so 
I personally think, especially on the ground organizing is the best way to combat the ideology and sort of the disinformation. I'm a big fan of Jacques Lewell, uh, who uh, was like a Christian anarchist from the mid-century who wrote the book uh, Propaganda and Technological Society and things like that. And there's just a lot of really old ideas uh, from the sort of uh, beginning of the communication era around um, propaganda and how we can use uh, relationships and sort of community bonds to address that type of disinformation. So on days that I feel extra philosophical, uh, that's the kind of stuff I like to talk about, but there, it's definitely a common thread throughout the work that I've been doing the last 15 years or so. I've talked to a number of people who took that Marshall Gans class and he's kind of a legendary theoretician of organizing. What did you take from it? What did you think of him? I mean, I thought it was excellent. I think that that I can go back and, you know, <laughs> I was using Google Docs at that time. Uh, so I still have all of my files in my Google Drive. So um, I was just looking some stuff up the other day and one popped up and there's sort of a, a definitive arc in my <laughs> communications pre-GANS class and post-GANS class. I mean, I think the idea of story of self and how to talk about your public narrative it was sort of a defining moment for me to understand the work that I was doing at at a at a more systems level. I, I, when I was working at America's Voice for ten years on immigration policy and communications, you know, we always talked about narrative, um, but 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 the Marshall Gans class was a way to to really understand how I, you know, the story of myself and what I'm doing is fitting into the story of our collective us and how that our collective stories are really relevant to the moment that we're in. So I thought it was excellent. You know, I, I've started more these days talking about our work, not just in terms of narrative shift, but in terms of paradigm shift. You know, there's a, a, a strong sense that um, politics is downstream of culture. And I think that that's often true. But what we have to realize is everybody has a different stream. The pop culture is not a is not a stream for everybody, <laughs> and and that's something I actually learned working in the immigrant community, where you know uh, the best strategies out there are are often coming through the Spanish language press and in the Spanish language press, and and a lot of the work that I'm doing, frankly, now I think is is understanding rural as an identity, not just a geography, um, and the overlap of how narrative and sort of paradigm shift uh, plays in that space. What did you take from the years working in other political niches that you bring to the rural organizing? That's really interesting. That's a, that's a great question. In a lot of ways, and I'll, I'll be pretty open about this. I mean, a lot of the stuff we're doing at rural organizing is deeply rooted in watching how the dreamers organized. Um, when I was first moving over more into politics, I was about the same age as a lot of sort of the first generation of dreamers that were, you know, working on the dream act going back into 2001 and, and things like that. And, uh, a lot of the work that they did around telling their own story, uh, sort of through the, through the undocumented unafraid movement kind of on the sidelines, watching that was something that I, um, I really learned a lot from and just the, the ability to, or the, and the, and the, strategy of owning your power and sort of owning the power of your story. Also, um, the strategy around sort of holding your friends accountable first and building a base before you move out and try and, you know, persuading people. Like I think sometimes, uh, especially in the rural context, the temptation is to go immediately go into a persuasion space. It's like, we're losing by so many margins. How do we persuade the Obama Trump voter? And like, I actually start in a space of like, okay, 
who's our base? And like, who's going to be persuading the Obama Trump voter? And so there has just been, I think, a, a lack of investment in the people. Like our technologies are great. Our ability to send text messages and emails and direct mail and to analyze the data and the data analytics. I mean, that stuff is phenomenal. Those technologies were always designed to supplement the sort of human piece of organizing. And I think Dreamers to this day and the sort of undocumented youth movement more broadly than Dreamers, because Dreamers is a, you know, a relatively small segment of the undocumented youth space, uh, they do it better than anybody. I watched them, you know, f- I watched friends know how to mobilize their community online, but do it in a way that was very deeply rooted in relationships and not just, here's my spreadsheet of emails that I'm going to you know spam. It was, this is how I'm going to use the technology to mobilize people around our common story. So I think that's probably uh, one of the biggest aspects that's that we've tried to integrate into our work at RollOrganizing.org. I hear a lot of people across a lot of spaces talk about this like how to communicate wrapping that so much in story and in personal story and whether it's like deep canvassing, whether it's advising people on messaging, whether it's things like you're just mentioning with young people who are so fluent in self-created media, is that fully scalable? Is it going to wear out its welcome if like Everybody who comes to your door says, this is who I am. This is why I'm talking to you. Or, or do you think that that is just like a fundamental way of human communication that will be fine if it's adopted in a more and more widespread way? I worry about sometimes that we get stuck on something that works, but we sort of make it hard and fast and do the same way over and over, but I don't really know. Yeah, no, I, I, um, this idea of act naturally, you know, this is how to act naturally never works. Uh, but, but I, I mean, think when I've canvassed, I've, I've, I've learned that you can have a rap, but then throw it out, keep it in mind and talk to the person that's there, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I, it's interesting. I mean, the best canvassing conversation I ever had on a deep canvas was I was in Appalachia, Ohio and, uh, somebody's goats had gotten out. And, you know, we spent most of the time talking about 4-H and goats. I don't think I persuaded them on anything, but they thought I was nice and, <laughs> you know, like at least believed in like, they believed that I believed in what I was doing. And, you know, I think that it was a, one of the better conversations I ever had. I don't know how you build a deep canvassing goat model, but. I've tried it with someone who helped me rescue two miniature donkeys once, but I think it might not be scalable. <laughs> I will say my, my mom uh, runs her miniature donkeys now in the 4th of July parade for the Democrats. So maybe there is a more scale there than when you realize. So <laughs> interestingly, and this is where my, sometimes my strategic communications background can get in the way, but you know, through the public opinion research that we've done, we often find the messenger matters more than the message. And that's a really tough uh, thing to to grapple with and to scale. And this is some of the great work that J.D. Scholten and, and John Ray at YouGov have done. But you can look and you you can have somebody tell you the exact, you know, two exact same talking points, but if but how you describe who the person who's giving those talking points will will change uh, and one party label will change it by 30 points. Yeah. And just putting a D next to the person's name will change it by 30 points. And so that to me is the fundamental question that we, you know, we need to address. And so, I mean, I, I, I don't get that picky about rural engagement strategies. Cause the fact is, is that like, 
there's just not a lot that's happening in these communities and anything is better than nothing through uh, some partners. We did a, a, a scientific field experimentation at the impact of yard signs in Kentucky in 2019. And, you know, there was sort of this conventional wisdom that yard signs don't vote. And I, I will say that's that's true. My snarky response is, well, vendors, n- no vendors vote and, you know, we're not ruling out vendors. And so there is a role, you know, putting the research that we've done, field experimentation, scientific, buffer counties, and, you know, all this, we were looking at uh, county, our precincts were, uh, had an average partisan score of 30. So they were definitely Appalachia, Kentucky counties. Um, and, you know, we, we, we were able to move, uh, by putting yard signs in people's yards, we were able to move two net partisan votes per precinct. And we were doing about 25 signs per precinct. That's actually not bad. I mean, two partisan votes per precinct doesn't sound like a lot, but in, in razor thin elections, that's not not too bad. I'm convinced it actually wasn't the yard sign that was persuading people. It was the fact that we were knocking on people's door saying, do you want a yard sign? And then when they put a yard sign up, they had a yard sign in their yard for for six weeks, and so they, that was their reminder to go to the polls. It doesn't really matter if it was the yard sign, as long as you have that result. Whatever the mechanism is, is not really important. Right, exactly. And you know, in 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 a lot of ways, especially in rural communities, like you know, a person's front yard is like their social media profile, right? And we would love it. You know, we do tons of work trying to get people to post content on social media to amplify our voice. Well, that's all you're doing with the yard sign too. So I think that in some ways, you know, we get so focused on this an- analysis or these analytics or whatever. And we just realized when I lived in Northwest Iowa for five years, we would have county chairs that would, uh, that wouldn't even host caucuses on off years. They would always do it in presidential years, but on off years, they wouldn't host their caucus and they would just fill out the form and turn it into the state party. Sometimes it's hard to describe just how little is happening in these communities. I just encourage people to just do something, you know, start now, start small and have a, a build for the future mindset. And I think that that's kind of how we have to, to, to address things. The number one challenge that we see in these communities is the idea, and we hear it all the time. I never heard it growing up, but I hear it all the time now. And it's the idea that it is what it is. And so just addressing the idea that we as people in our democracy can impact decisions made at the federal level is is a huge challenge. And just getting people involved, just getting people to take that first step, whatever that is, is the hardest part. Once we have that, once we have the network, once we have the messengers, it's easier to get them to, to, to do the most you know, good or have the most efficient strategy. But, but going from zero to one is the hardest step. Getting from one to 10 is, is I think, oftentimes easier. So we're really focused on that zero to one. You mentioned Steve King. What did he mean to you? Like, what did he symbolize? It was really personal. I mean, the, so the reason I decided to move back to to rural Iowa is because I was watching the Dream Act vote. I think it was uh, in 2010, 2011. It was right over the New Year's. Um, and it's Steve King, I was in the gallery of the house, and Steve King was just saying the most vile, you know, racist stuff. And um, and my whole my whole family's from that part of the country, and so I I had just kind of a real personal like embarrassment of like I can't believe this is where I'm from, and Steve King is so out of line. Like there was a time when you had sort of the populist movement in Northwest Iowa, and you had sort of the freedom fighters <laughs> fighting against you know corporate monopolies in the early 1900s, but it's been years since those early uh, 1900 milk strikes. But um, but you know most people I knew in Northwest Iowa. 
were not overtly racist. They they didn't really fully understand issues, but they would at least give you the time of day to to explain it to them. Steve King was just you know steeped in white nationalist uh, rhetoric, and I was always just like, why is he successful? It just it never really made sense to me. So um, we I decided to move back uh, to that to to Northwest Iowa. Um, one to be closer to family and and to get out of DC, but two because his his district you know just was really a puzzle to me. What he was able to do, and Trump does this now too, or, and I've, sometimes I see it explicitly, where where Steve King knew how to set himself up as the victim of the left, and he would sort of throw the first punch. Nobody was really watching what Steve King was saying in in the district, and then all of a sudden the left would respond, and Steve King would say things like you know. They're attacking me, but they're attacking me because I'm protecting you from them. Donald Trump Jr. uses that language all the time. And I think that that was something that I really uh, thought that there has to be a better way to respond to him. You know, the fact is, is that Steve King's district is a district, especially Steve King's hometown in Storm Lake. Uh, Storm Lake now is, uh, if not, I think it's already a, ma- a majority minority community. The communities that are thriving in, in Steve King's congressional district are directly connected to immigrant communities. Um, some of the conservative evangelical kind of Republicans are some of the most radically welcoming people in his district. And Steve King was so out of touch with the day-to-day needs of the community. You know, he wasn't addressing outward migration of young people. He wasn't supporting the new immigrants that were coming in. I mean, he really had no real solutions for these people, but he was able to couch everything in sort of this victimization mindset, you know, through old, you know, white nationalist tactics, frankly, that go back generations. And so one of the things that I was really interested in is like, what if we actually fought for rural people in these communities? Not the sort of 1950s Norman Rockwell stereotype of rural America, but like for the immigrants that are working in these communities and living in these communities, for the young people, for the old people that are trying to retire and trying to you know age with dignity. Like, what if we actually developed an agenda? So instead of just getting sucked into the sort of white nationalist strategy, we were actually showing people how we are delivering as progressives for them. And I think we've had way more strat, uh, way more success with that strategy um, than sort of getting in a Twitter fight <laughs> or sort of having the best snarky takedown of Steve King. That stuff has its limitations. Now, I'm somebody that will engage in that on Twitter, admittedly, but the thing that really moves people is when they see you delivering and fighting for their their communities. And to be able to point out, Steve King's not fighting for you, we are. That's why J.D. Scholten was able to move the needle 22 points or whatever, especially in 2018, is that J.D. had an agenda for the voters in King's district, and Steve King, frankly, did not. So you mentioned that you started ruralorganizing.org as a passion project. Tell me about that sort of founding story. Yeah. So uh, so I started rollorganizing.org with an $8 GoDaddy domain. So you really went all out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the best $8 I've uh, investment I ever made. Yeah. I mean, the fact that rollorganizing.org was available in 2011 is, you know, was to me, was always a sign of just the lack of investment. Like that's a domain that should have been purchased 15 years prior to that, at least. Um but yeah, I was you know living in rural Northwest Iowa, and um, I had just worked on a congressional campaign as a, a sort of super volunteer against Steve King on my own time, and just realized like there was just a lack of of resources uh, for people like me. There was sort of an assumption, even out of Des Moines, uh, that like you know what good could come from 
from Larchwood, Iowa, which is the town I was living in. Like if you're any good, the sort of, there's a perception kind of in the political spaces of like, if you're any good at your job, you would, you would live in DC, let alone, you know, or, or at least Des Moines. Um, and so it just was kind of the assumption was people like me didn't exist. Like there wasn't any progressives in rural communities. Um, so I had a background in production. I was working at the time, uh, for a job in DC, but living remotely in Northwest Iowa, I learned Drupal myself and I was like, you know what, maybe I can put something together. So I started just by um, aggregating resources that Wellstone Action had put out, that Iowa CCI was putting out, you know, anybody that had anything for rural organizing, I tried to create a, a catalog of that. And so that's how it started. And then actually through a, 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 a partnership with moveon.org, moveon had that, the progressive partnership. Um, we just did a series of campaigns. I had a background at that point. I was doing some digital organizing. So we were able to get a couple hundred thousand people on a few different petitions. And then through those petitions, literally my board, we started as an all-volunteer board. I found my board on Twitter. And so we're a very digital native group. Um, I put out a, a Google form and said, hey, we're wanting to start this organization. We would love to connect with strategic advisors. And then they kind of, we got together and just built relationships. And then I said, Hey, what if we did this formally, you guys be the board, I'll, you know, be on staff. And that was about 2018, 2019. At that point, you know, there was a interest in rural voters because of Donald Trump, frankly. And so we started getting more successful with fundraising and uh, our first big campaign was in 2019 with the yard signs and the Andy Bashir race. And, um, you know, we've been kind of off to the races since then. We had uh, four or five states in 2020 where we really had on the ground programming through the super PAC, which we started in late 2020. We placed 42,500 yard signs in less than six weeks. We did that with just our uh, volunteer network. It was just because we've been focused for so long on building the network, like between 2012 and 2019, when everything was unfunded and just, you know, on our own time, we really invested in building the network. And so that network is today the foundation of everything we do. And it's kind of like, you know, we can run these distributed campaigns because it's just like, oh yeah, call Jordy. He lives in, you know, Pennsylvania. He's somebody that could get us connected with people in Pennsylvania. They'll help us place these signs because there's so much of a value I think created in that network. We're able to leverage that in many different ways. I'm always intrigued by the numerous people who have created networks and kind of hubs like yours. They're basically political entrepreneurs, I see it. And the relationship to things like the Democratic Party and other institutions out there, Move On is, is a, another institution that has a lot of people, but also is outside of the party. Like this whole progressive movement or ecosystem is made up of just zillions of people like you and their organizations that kind of loosely align or tightly align. How do you think of, of how you fit into this political world that you're part of? Yeah, I, I think about this all the time. I think the ideal scenario is investing in strong county parties. And I think there was a time when when the Democratic Party was really built on strong county parties. And I think that the the county party structure is is in in many places, especially in rural areas, is almost all but gone. I mean, and and some of this is something that I think about like the informal politics. The reason we're losing is because we're losing informal politics and Democrats I think have lost touch with the informal politics. And by that I mean 
in a rural community, your fire department is is run by volunteers. Your mayor is a volunteer. Your city council person is a volunteer. You know, your county Democratic Party is going to be volunteer. And and we've lost the ability to work with people in their sort of civic life. We know how to engage them as professionals. And so if there is a hired organizer at the county Democratic Party and a hired executive director, we know how to work with them. But we don't really know how to work with them if they're doing this, you know, between 6 and 9 p.m. on weekends. And so I think that there's there's just been, especially in the rural areas, a, an assumption that, well, they don't have anybody on staff. There's nobody for me to reach out to, or it's kind of a pain in the ass because I got to go through you know, this person that never really gets back to me and all that. So I actually think that the best thing we can do as a Democrat is to in, invest in the state and county parties. But you know, we run independent expenditures. And sometimes I wonder, is that, is that counterproductive? The fact is on rural issues, you know, legally, we can't coordinate with the Democratic Party, but right now there would not be somebody for us to coordinate with. There is not a strong rural desk at the DNC. There's not a strong rural desk at the DCCC. There are not, and I don't mean to say this even to criticize those institutions, but this is the number one thing you will hear from state chairs in rural states is that there is just a lack of people to call. Uh, that sort of can understand how rural the sort of rural dynamics play out differently. So we've kind of taken the mentality that like we're not going to wait for the Democratic Party to make things happen, and we're just going to kind of move ahead and do what we can. I think it, in the short term, you know, especially for me, like I really am an issue advocacy person. Like we are one hundred percent focused on building rural prosperity from the bottom up. Right now, the only party that seems interested in that is the Democratic Party. But in my own time as a Democrat. Um, I, I really think that um, there's no really good long-term solution other than sort of rebuilding the party infrastructure. How did the entry of Donald Trump into our politics change how you think about progressive politics in the rural world? Well, so first of all, it made people interested in what I was doing. So that's there's a really weird dynamic that, you know, from 2012 to 2015, I would be like, hey, God, you know, I'd go to Netroots and stuff and be like, you know, we talk, how's your job going? Great. Oh, but I'm working on this really cool project. And oh, what's your project? Oh, it's called ruralorganizing.org. We're going to, we're going to engage rural progressives <laughs> and people would just be like, you know, that's boring. Rural America's shrinking. There's no real role for rural engagement in the progressive, you know, base building strategy. It's an interesting idea. I'm glad you're doing it, but I don't really care. That's not really my thing. You know, that was kind of like how people would, would engage it about October of 2016, people started being like, I think you might be onto something. And of course, at that point, it was too late. Donald Trump is the, the whole, that whole dynamic is fascinating because there's some things that I anticipated and, you know, was able to see. I didn't think Donald, there's a lot of people in rural America that would say, I knew Donald Trump was going to win in 2016. I didn't think Donald Trump was going to win in 2016. So I missed a lot. But the one thing that looking back that I think Donald Trump has done, like Republicans don't run on trickle down economics anymore. Like the whole structure of the Republican economic message is completely irrelevant and completely gone. They still do trickle down economics. They still, you know, invest in the top and try and convince working people that it's going to trickle down. But you don't see that rhetoric anymore like you used to. Donald Trump, you know, in in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt, in the industrial Midwest, he ran on an anti-NAFTA message. And in fact, when you look at the Obama-Trump voter, you know, half of the Obama Trump voters, maybe not exactly half, but a huge chunk of the Obama Trump voters historically voted for Republicans. And Obama was the one of the first Democrats that they actually voted for. And I think that Obama had a message that recognized 
the way that Midwest communities felt about offshoring and in a lot of people's mind, the sort of NAFTA dynamics were a real mobilizing factor. And so I think that in some ways, you know, Donald Trump in the Midwest, I mean, obviously he ran on racism. Obviously that racism was a huge mobilizing factor. I was in Steve King's district, very well aware of the impact of, of a sort of white national strategy. But there was also this more subtle kind of uh, attempt to go after old old school union voters and talk about how Democrats had left behind the industrial Midwest. And there was a lot of uh, analysis after the 2016 election talking about how Donald Trump won these landscapes of despair. And, and when you looked at a lot of the people being interviewed in those communities, they kind of were saying, you know, the system isn't working for me and I'm not a huge Donald Trump fan, but he's a wrecking ball. And maybe if I vote for the wrecking ball, people will start paying attention to the fact that our communities are completely devastated right now and in complete, you know, uh, despair. And so, you know, I think as things have progressed, people have started picking up on that narrative a little bit more. It's definitely something like, I think there's a huge chunk of people, you know, we will never convince, we'll never win. It's not worth, you know, engaging in those folks, but especially if we're talking about women under 45, men under 35, like there's some people that like really don't feel like either party has provided solutions for them and they feel condescended sometimes. Um, they feel like ignored. Um, and I think that there are, you know, some of those people with weaker partisan ties that I think are actually reachable. So I think in some ways, Donald Trump like weirdly made Democrats and progressives understand that they need to be more sophisticated in how they think about rural communities. Well, I get frustrated with people who don't recognize that Trump played some skillful political cards in 2016, the immigration card, the, the NAFTA card. I think on trade, he probably believed that going a long way back. On immigration, maybe he just saw it and decided that there was fruit there. But those moves were part of him getting at least the number of votes he got. When you think about the success he had in mobilizing surprising amounts of turnout, both in 2018 and 2020, more people voted than expected on the right. Like we we just didn't have the gains, the repudiation that that we were hoping for. We had a pretty good election in 2018, but man, it could have been better. In 2020, we won the presidency, but barely scraped majorities in Congress and lost a lot of Senate races that we thought we might win. I mean, if you were gonna talk to the powers that be in the party from your vantage point, what would you tell them? One of the brilliant things that Donald Trump did is he created a coalition that included labor and ev evangelicals, not all labor, obviously, but I think he he kind of stepped into the labor margins a little bit. And so in places like Ohio, where I spent all of the Trump years, actually, this sort of evangelical and sort of disgruntled uh, labor vote was a huge piece of the coalition and why he was able to swing the margin so much in Ohio. And he did that through this sort of angry nostalgia, which is, you know, an old uh, racist strategy in a lot of ways, but he was able to say, you know, remember when things were so great and remember when things were so good, we need to go back. His entire framing was, you know, that's the definition, I guess, in a lot of ways of conservative, but it was about going back to when things were good. We kind of mocked that because, you know, if you see that through a racial lens or some other lenses, there were terrible things happening when you go back, but there were better times 
in some parts of America economically in the past. It is a more complicated move than maybe he was given credit for or maybe that he intended. Yeah. Well, and I think he weaponized the racism parts of it, right? Like in, in some ways, I mean, the whole like, you know, white citizen councils and stuff like same message. This is why the, the Ku Klux Klan really latched on to, to his messaging. But for, I think, a large portion of the population that that doesn't have that that connection to, to, to diverse communities and like my friends that when they were asked, are you going to leave? Or are you going to stay? Decided to stay. Like there was a different time back then where downtown communities, you know, the storefronts and rural communities were all full and that the, the kids were getting a good education. They were seeing advances in healthcare and they were seeing, you know, good paying jobs and you could sort of have your life in your community. You could send your kids to college uh, for the next generation, especially in the fifties uh, for that part of, you know, let's say rural Ohio. And what I think we've not done as progressives as we forgot that the reason that we had this whole golden age of, you know, rural America, if we're going to say it that way, specifically in sort of the white uh, parts of, of, of rural America and the Midwest um, and uh, Northeast and parts of the West was because of progressive investment, right? Like the reason why we built this nostalgia that people have is because FDR and progressives invested in these communities. You would not have rural electrification without FDR. Our entire agriculture system is is rooted in a progressive framework developed by Wallace and uh, and FDR. I mean, like this history is directly connected to to investments that progressives made through the New Deal. And so, you know, there's a, there's a really weird dynamic, and a lot of people in our network will refer to it, where some of the most progressive people are the oldest people, like the greatest generation were in a lot of ways more progressive than boomers and, and Gen Xers in rural communities. And it's because they remember the impact of the New Deal in their communities. And so I think that uh, nostalgia can often be a... Um, a force that racist white nationalists uh, weaponize. But I also think there's a story here in our history um, that we've forgotten. And a lot of times progressives just don't even know that like our modern agriculture and the reason why, you know, farmers aren't completely bankrupt is because FDR developed really progressive agriculture policies that are still in place today. And if you tried to take those subsidies from away from farmers that FDR is responsible for, they would lose you know, they would lose their mind fighting for them. And so I think sometimes we've just lost the sense of that progressive history that we have. And we as progressives love to talk about new things because we're always thinking about what's next, how can we make things better? But I think that we also have to remember that history and we have to tell it. One of the things that I've noticed about Trump is that he may not know how to govern very well, but he keeps his eye on the political ball, right? He is always campaigning uh, and always sees things through that lens even like, what am I going to do in my relationship with Ukraine? I'm going to try to get that to help me in politics, but absolutely everything. I feel like we maybe aren't keeping up with that on our side. What do you think? I agree. I mean, FDR did that, right? Like FDR would always, the, the WPA was, you know, accused of being a political wing of the FDR operation. And, and maybe it was, <laughs> he did know that when you provide people with jobs and you get good paying jobs into communities that people like that and they vote for, for those leaders. I, I get a little bit annoyed when, when people in politics complain about politics, like this is politics. This is what we do. Like, you know, there's two metrics when it comes to governance that matter. Do people know about the policy and do they like it? And Donald Trump, Donald Trump knew that, and he knew how to talk about policies 
in a way that you know he could use his megaphone. And I think the media is responsible for giving him billions and billions of dollars in free media. And I think that's a big problem, but he knew how to do it. And then he knew how to focus on the policies that people like. Donald Trump will talk about weird things like ending daylight savings time. He's not just going on a crazy rant there. Ending daylight savings time is a weird issue that has like incredible just ground swell of support in a lot of communities. It doesn't matter what he's talking about. He'll pick whatever. And I think this is where he used data really well. And I think, you know, his pollsters are really smart and he didn't have a history of votes because he had no experience in politics and governance. So he could say whatever the polls told him to say. And I think sometimes it it seems incoherent to us. And it seems like it's just this stream of thought, but in his mind, I think he is hitting on all the points. He's pressing some buttons. Yeah. He's put his, and his pollsters told him to say it. And so he's saying it. So, or he, or he just listens to the audience. Do they cheer or do they not cheer? He's testing stuff. Yeah. 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 And I think that in our, I, I, I truly believe that good policy is good politics. And I think that, you know, actually delivering for people is, is, is the solution. But I, I get annoyed when, when Democrats want us to, to work to get them elected. And then once they're elected, it's like, oh, I can't do that. That's political. And it's like, what do you think we're doing here? Of course it's political. So um, totally, I totally agree with you. And, and that's something that Trump, you know, he never let governance get in the way of, of his politics. And I think there's something to at least acknowledging that politics as that play, because frankly, I actually think that oftentimes voters appreciate it because sometimes voters feel like, you know, like if you look at our polling, our polling shows that progressive policies are widely popular, that actually the Democratic brand, the D, is more a liability to progressive policies than progressive policies are a liability to Democrats. I think people have this feeling of like, we want you to do this. And it's uh, in our focus groups, we pick up on this sort of trend of like, do nothing Democrats. Like they're all, they have great ideas, but they don't actually do it. And I think people really appreciated uh Trump being like, you want it, you got it. You know, he, that was kind of his attitude to things. And obviously it was reckless and racist and in a lot of contexts, but you know, he would tell people that we're going to have free healthcare and we're going to have, you know, if you really listen to what he was telling people, um, there was a bunch of things that he was just ripping off from, from Democrats. Yeah. So tell me where, where you're going with rural organizing. What's, what's coming in 2022, 2024, where do you want to take this organization? Yeah. So, um, First of all, I mean, rural and as much as Trump is is what folks talk about, um, I actually think the presidential election is the last place that rural voters have an impact. And I think, you know, uh, Biden was able to move the needle by a percentage point or so in rural communities. And that had a major impact on the Electoral College, where we see the impact of rural voters every day is in the Senate. And that's because the way that the Senate is built, uh, voters, rural voters in places like my home state of South Dakota have a way outweighed impact on the on the process than uh, voters in more urban areas. Rural voters and the Senate are always going to be tied together. And of course, because the Senate is tied to rural voters, the Supreme Court is tied to rural voters. And that is why I think it feels like we've really lost ground in places like the Supreme Court and the Senate is because until we actually have a rural strategy uh, for winning in these states, um, I think we're going to just keep bumping up against the, the sort of the structure of of the system. So um, we're really going to be focused in 2022 and getting out rural voters for progressive candidates in the Senate. We're really looking at places like 
Um, you know, Georgia is always an important state. Uh, the the Pennsylvania, North Carolina, whether or not it's the Senate or governor's races, Ohio, Minnesota. You know, there, there's a lot of really strong networks in those uh, states that we're really focusing on resourcing. Um, so that's kind of for the political side of things a strong presence in those Senate races and then maybe some of the governor's races is going to be a, a real important piece of our work. But 2023 is going to be the farm bill. I hate that it's called the farm bill. I wish it was called like the rural bill. Uh, only like 6% of rural Americans make uh, their income directly from agriculture. And so this idea of rural and farm gets too closely tied. <laughs> and now you have urban farms. I mean, it's just agriculture and rural needs. I think there needs to be a little bit more of a focus beyond just agricultural rural. But the farm bill despite its name, has a ton of programs that address shared prosperity, equitable prosperity in rural communities. So we're really wanting to ramp up our efforts around the Farm Bill, uh, not just from a policy change perspective, which is something that we really want to focus on, um, but we think that uh, getting elected officials, you know, once they get elected, plugged into uh, things like the Farm Bill and, and getting some really popular progressive policies moving through things like the farm bill, we think that that's a, that's a really strong way to start showing our receipts to rural voters, right? We don't want to just show up and say, hey, we're going to, if you vote for this, we'll do great things. We want to say, you know, we we got elected and this is what we've done. And I think that, you know, the Build Back Better bill, hopefully we'll pass that. I think there's some great real programs in that bill. Um, we have some great stuff through ARPA and the infrastructure bill. Um, but I think that we need to take some of the lessons we've learned through that process and we need to apply it to, um, to the, to the farm bill in 2023. So I think that's going to be a really big opportunity for us to look at things like extension programs and 4-H programs and all these things that are incredibly popular in rural communities, many of which go back to the FDR new deal era. Um, and, and to really think about how do those programs, uh, play a more significant role in ensuring that our, our small towns and our rural communities are resilient for, uh, for decades to come. So I think that's going to be the big focus. And then, of course, once we get back to 2024, I mean, my hope is that we have a, a strong showing in the farm bill and that people uh, really see uh, progressives and Democrats fighting for their, their communities through that fight. And I think hopefully, like I said, showing people what, how we deliver for them uh, is going to be a big, a big piece of our 2024 story. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Hmm. I think your questions are good. I got away from my talking points. I prefer that. <laughs> <laughs> are you optimistic about rural America, politically and otherwise? I am. Um, After a pause. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to think about it. I mean... It's an interesting dynamic. I fought to live in a rural community. Uh, I live in a rural community now, and it was sort of a a very intentional effort. And I I, I actually prefer living in rural areas. Um, and so, on a very personal note, I am I am optimistic. I think things are really bad. I think things are worse than we realize when it comes to the insurrection and the disinformation and the QAnon. That's not necessarily a rural problem. You know, eighty percent of Trump's voters were from metro counties. Anything that I I'm I'm worried about. I don't think it's just a rural issue, but it's it's really a, a democracy issue, and the future of our politics in the United States, I think, is 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 a question between really inclusive populism versus exclusive populism, and you know, exclusive populism also has a name of fascism. <laughs> so sometimes I think we get so focused on the details and sort of the the mechanics of this bill or that bill and and the press release that we're sending out today, that we are sort of missing the overall trend, 
which is, you know, people have really lost faith in democracy itself. And um, a lot of that has been an intentional effort by specific people that benefit from people losing faith in the system. And I think that um, some of the big questions that we're going to be wrestling with over the next five to 10 years are going to be rooted in the trend that is, has been really this, this earthquake in slow motion where, you know, people who call themselves patriots no longer believe in the American system. And so I think there's a role that rural organizing plays in that sense. And I think that any sort of disinformation and white nationalism activity that is in rural communities because rural voters have an outweighed impact on the system itself. But I don't think that's just a problem for rural people to figure out. I think that's something that we all have to figure out. And and I I, I do have uh, faith that we'll, we'll get through it. And I think that it's going to take some organizing that's actually rooted in communities, rooted in people that live in those communities. It's not something that somebody from outside of a community can solve. It's something the communities themselves have to solve. So that's why I'm so focused on the rural piece of the organizing, the people in our network, the folks that uh, live in these communities and that sort of plug into our work through our social media or through our email list or through phone calls and Zoom meetings, those folks really give me a lot of hope for the future. Yeah, I think I uh, agree with you about the big threat and sometimes losing sight of it. I see that a lot and I'm pretty scared. And I don't think there's any guarantee that we don't go down a pretty grim road. Certainly the the work of people like you and many others that are in the fight may be what staves it off. And I appreciate that you're doing that. Well, I appreciate having a conversation with you and I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, appreciate just being able to be on it. That was Matt Hildreth. Matt is at ruralorganizing.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.